The following message is from the 2019 IBCD Training Institute, Identity Crisis. So this is I Am Called to Ministry. And uh, what we're going to be exploring is the potential of ministry becoming idolatrous. And how do you avoid uh, those tendencies? And I know that can even sound strange. How in the world can ministry become idolatrous? But as we explore uh, the tendencies of the heart, I think it'll become uh, very clear. Uh, Let me pray for us. And then I have a couple of advertisements for you uh, after we pray. Father, thank you for this privilege of being here. And I thank you for what you're doing through this conference and through uh, helping us think through our identity. And we are humbled by being called your children, that uh, that we can call you Father, that we've been adopted, that we are in Christ. And uh, we know we don't deserve that. As Jeremy just was sharing with us, we are sinners. And uh, we are thankful for your grace in our lives. Lord, we want to commit this time to you. And we know that uh, it can be our tendency to turn anything into an idol. So help us, Lord, even with something as good as ministry, to be careful of not making it uh, an idol that we bow down to. Um, So I commit this time to you as an act of worship. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, it's really good to be here and thankful to have my partner in ministry, Rose, uh, with me and that we can uh, that we can travel together. Uh, We serve at First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and I'm very thankful to be able to lead the counseling ministry there. We have a counseling center called the Grace Center for Biblical Counseling. And uh, then a lot of my job is mentoring the pastoral staff. We have about, uh, I think it's about 38, 40 pastoral ministry staff members, and they're all becoming ACBC certified. So that is my main, a main responsibility is helping them through that process. And then of course, raising up lay counselors uh, in the church. And I'm really, really thankful uh, for them. And uh, we left Masters University two and a half years ago to go do that when Heath Lambert became the senior pastor of our church. And uh, you can pray for us because it's, um, as Heath would say, mega church, mega problems. And uh, we're, we're seeing all kinds of things in our counseling center, just like you see uh, in your, your ministries. A um, couple of advertisements. We have some training coming up I wanted to make you aware of. And I brought a few of these brochures. But we have a, a, our basic training, which we call Biblical Care and Discipleship. And then we're having Mark Shaw. Uh, who's an ACBC counselor, who's probably one of the leading uh, ACBC or biblical in the biblical counseling world thinkers on substance abuse. He's written a lot on that topic. Jacksonville, just like everywhere, has a huge problem with substance abuse. And uh, we're trying to make a difference as a church. So we're having a substance abuse conference with Mark Shaw coming up in August. But then the one I'm really excited about and probably most passionate about is called the School of Mediation. And uh, that's where we take peacemaker principles, if you're familiar with the book, The Peacemaker, or Robert Jones's book, Pursuing Peace. And we teach people those principles. And Robert Jones from Southern is going to be there with me. But then we're actually going to teach how do you run a mediation. And you not only learn about it or hear about it, you actually practice it. So by the time you're done with the School of Mediation, you will have led a mediation. So that's in September. And again, that's called the School of Mediation. And information is on our church website, FBC Jacks. And you can find information about all of those. Or I have some cards up here. And then I wanted to tell you about a, if you haven't seen this new series of booklets, relatively new, about the last three or four years, Shepherd Press, uh, Ted Tripp has been putting out a whole series of new counseling booklets called the Help Mini Book Series. And I'm thankful to have two in this series. But the one I'm really excited about just came out, and it's with Johnny and Friends. So Johnny and Friends Ministry has just adopted a biblical counseling worldview. And we are very excited about that. And they're publishing their very first biblical counseling resources for the disability world. 
and I was asked to write one called Help Disability Pressures Our Marriage. So that's brand new. It's only been out a month, I think, maybe two months. And then I have one on conflict resolution as well. There's 35 titles. And the thing that I really like about the series for the biblical counseling world is that in the back of these, the, each of the authors was asked to put in homework assignments. So you as a counselor don't have to dream up homework assignments of how to apply uh, the material that's in the booklet. And it's the way we hope that people will apply the, the material that's in the booklet. So every one of the help mini books has built in homework assignments in the back of it. Well, let's get to our topic. And this is a topic, this is going to sound strange and I hope a little bit shocking as I start off here. This is a topic I've been living with for 61 years. So you look at me and you go, are you really that old? The answer is yes. So here's why I've been living with this topic for 61 years, because I grew up in a pastoral ministry home. And so I'm a PK and I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 40 years. I would also add to that introduction that this seminar, as I've been thinking about it, has probably been percolating for about, oh, 25 to 30 years as I got further into ministry and began to see the tendencies of some in pastoral ministry and some even in ministry in general. So this is not just going to be about pastoral ministry, even though that is the topic that is nearest and dearest to my heart. But it's, it's going to be about just ministry in general. And how can you tell if ministry has become idolatrous? And I've seen that happen over and over again. In fact, I'm counseling a pastor and his wife right now where I believe there's very strong tendencies in the pastor's life of certain aspects of pastoral ministry. Like, I, I have to tell the truth no matter what the consequences and uh, the damage that it's been doing to his marriage just by being, I am called to tell the truth, and no matter what it does to you, I'm going to tell you the truth. And it's done a tremendous amount of damage uh, to his marriage. So let's think about what it means to be called to ministry and how do we keep it from becoming idolatrous. And now some of this is going to be reviewed, but I'm just going to ask you to be patient with me because I have to lay a foundation here. So the first point in your notes is just a review of what the heart is and what is, what's going on inside the human heart. So if we're going to make an accurate diagnosis of whether something has become idolatrous, we really have to understand the tendencies of the human heart. So I really want to lay a solid foundation and then ask you some questions that by getting at the answers to those questions... You can help people discern, or you can even discern in your own heart, has ministry become idolatrous? So here's some basic definitions that are the, the first thing in your notes. Uh, you have theological word book of the Old Testament. And then my uh, favorite one is Kohler Bumgarner, and I'll explain why it's my favorite one. These are from Hebrew uh, lexicons mainly. And what lave means in the Old Testament, so if you're going to put that in English, L-E-V, lave in the Old Testament or cardia in the New Testament, what is the heart? Here's the reason why I like the first one, Theological Wordbook of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with this tool, uh, the main editor is a guy named Gleason Archer, who is absolutely brilliant with Semitic languages. And he says, or the, uh, the writer of this section of theological word book says, Lave in the Old Testament, in its abstract meanings, became the, and here's the part I really wanted you to hear, the richest biblical term for the totality of man's inner or immaterial nature. Now, don't miss the next part. The three traditional personality functions of man, emotion, thought, or will. Now, here's why that's important, because often when I'm dealing with people and trying to help them see how they're impacting uh, others in relationships, they'll, they'll say, it's just my personality. And that's exactly what this pastor is saying to me right now. It's just the way I'm wired. And, you know, that's what I'm called to do. I'm supposed to be a truth teller. This is what I'm called to do. And that's just the way I'm wired. I just say it how it is. And his wife, after 15 years, is saying, you've really hurt me a lot by saying things the way they, they are. But he would say, it's my calling, and that's who I am. It's my identity. 
and I'm wired this way. It's just the way that God made me. So one of the first things I wanted you to see is what the culture would call personality. What would the Bible call that? The heart. It's originating in the heart. So the way you think of it. So what is the heart? Your emotions, your thought life and your will. So your mind, the way you process life, the culture would say, well, the way you think about life, that's your personality. The reason why you make the decisions that you do about spending time, money, etc., your inclinations, that's just your personality. And your emotions, the things that stir your emotions, that may stir your emotions, that don't stir my emotions, well, that's just your personality. Well, Gleason Archer and others are saying, no, the Bible would say, that's really your heart. And so I want to help people understand what's going on at the heart level and why do we have this tendency or why can we have a tendency to make ministry idolatrous? Now, I like Kohler Bumgartner uh, because it's the most concise of all of these. And I'm going to show you a couple of passages of Scripture just to reinforce it. So Kohler Bumgartner say this, it's one's inner self, the seed of feeling and emotions inclination, disposition, they're really nuancing this a lot for us. What is the heart? Your inclinations, your disposition, will, so your decision-making, your reasoning, the mind in general. So with that in mind, turn with me to Jeremiah. And I just want to show you the connection here. And then we're going to look at Genesis 6-5, which is the first mention of the word heart in the Bible. So it's always interesting to go to the first place the Bible uses a word. So Genesis 6, 5, 5, which is the flood account. So Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, you know the verses. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And in case you're wondering, I'm reading from New American Standard. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Now, let me ask you a question. So what you're seeing here is Hebrew parallelism in verse 10. So what's the word, the substitute word or the synonym for heart that's in the second line of verse 10? The mind. So again, that's called Hebrew parallelism. He's just stating the same thing with a different word. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. So the thought life is a key indicator of the heart. What's going on in my thought life? So that'll become important in just a moment as we're trying to discern, has ministry become idolatrous? Uh, Genesis 6.5, let's turn there. And I've told you some of the thought life. What, what were you hearing, by the way, in this pastor's thought life? So I, I'm trying to keep this practical and tell you a real life story. So what's going on in this pastor's thought life? Like um, we just heard in the general session, the way he views himself is a certain skewed way that this is just who I am. I'm not going to change. Yeah, this is who I am. I'm not going to change. I'm just and he's used this word with me. I'm wired mm -hmm. this way and I'm a truth teller. That's I believe it's an excuse for his sin. He doesn't see it yet. So pray for my brother as I'm, as I'm trying to help him. He doesn't see it yet. So Genesis 6, 5 says, and this is the flood account. And this is an interesting uh, verse to trace through in a couple. I'll give you some cross references for it if you're interested. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent. So there's that word from Kohler Baumgartner, the inclinations the disposition, um, every intent of the thoughts, there's the mind of his heart, was only evil continually. Uh, similar thinking in chapter 8, verse 21, and chapter 13, verse 13, talking about the intentions of the heart. Now, can you think of any other verse in the New Testament that talks about that? Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, and it divides right down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It sounds very similar to Genesis chapter 6. So I love the Word of God, don't you? The Word of God helps discern what's really going on on the inside. So we're trying to lay a really good foundation here because I, want to, I have to be able, with biblical eyeglasses, help people see, okay, what's going on in your intentions 
that help them discern, okay, has ministry become idolatrous or has anything become idolatrous in your life? So I'm going to give you some tests. Point C is going to be how do you diagnose if something has become idolatrous? Because, good grief, we're talking about ministry. People would say, I'm just serving the Lord. Yeah, it's, what do you mean ministry can become an idol? I'm just serving the Lord. So it, this could be a particularly stubborn, stubborn idol for people to see because it sounds so good. The intention sounds so good. I'm sacrificing my life to serve the Lord as a Sunday school teacher, or as a missionary, as a pastor, and a WANA leader, or whatever it is. So how can you tell if something has become idolatrous will be point C. Uh, now, Brown, Driver, and Briggs, again, I like this Hebrew lexicon. They say, specific reference to inclinations. So why am I inclined this way? Why, do, why am I so driven? You, you know driven people? <laughs> why am I so driven? Resolutions. Determinations of the will. That's decision-making. But I really like this. As the seed of the appetites and passions. What, why am I so passionate about this? Now, this is getting tricky, isn't it? Because we would never, you're never going to hear me say that all ambition is sinful and all passions are sinful. I, in fact, in counseling, I don't want people to kill passion. God made us with passion. I want to help people redirect their passion to the right things. But can we be passionate about the wrong things? And can people have a wrong amount of passion even towards something like ministry? And I believe that the answer is yes. Um, I, I heard this uh, just to help you start thinking about where I'm headed toward this and asking diagno diagnostic questions and helping us discern if something has become idolatrous. Very potent quote, cutting quote. It says this, no amount of success in ministry can make up for being a failure as a husband and a father. Let me say that again. No amount of success in ministry can make up for being a for a failure as a husband and a father. So I have to be able to help a man who's so driven or a person who's so driven in ministry start thinking through, okay, are my priorities right? Is there something going wrong with my priorities? And uh, I think that's exactly what's going on, partially at least, with my friend that I'm counseling right now, and he's, he doesn't see it yet. So to diagnose the heart, we've got to ask some heart questions. So what are heart questions? Uh, there's nothing magical about mine. Come up with your own heart questions. So uh, be a thinker. Please be a thinker and come up with your own heart questions. But I'm just trying to prime the pump here. And I left an X. Did you end up with an extra bullet point there, a blank one? That's because I want you to write in one of your own at least. And we're going to brainstorm here in a moment. So what's a heart question? The heart mainly is, let me write these things up here. So mind, decision-making, emotions, so what stirs the emotions, and desires, because it's about appetites and passions. Uh, remember that from one of the definitions, the heart's about appetites and passions. So what am I hungry for? And as soon as you start asking questions like that, it, you can start seeing how it gets connected in ministry. I'm hungry for approval. I'm hungry for success. Well, and then the pastor or whoever it is may come back and say, well, is it wrong to be driven to be successful in ministry? Well, then we have to nuance. How do you know if a good desire has become a sinful desire? And that's exactly where we're going to go in point C in the outline, because even, isn't most sin something good that has gone bad. That's exactly what much sin is, is it's something good, like sex, it's gone bad. Or money, Scripture says, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. So uh, how do I tell if something like being ambitious, successful in ministry has turned into a wrong desire? So hang tight right now. Heart is mind will, emotions, and desires. So what are heart questions? Heart questions are going to explore thinking. Heart questions are going to explore decision-making. Heart questions are going to explore emotions. And heart questions are going to explore appetites and passions. 
And then because I want to be a, a wise counselor, I want to put who, what, when, where, why, or how in front of it because I want to get the most bang for my buck when I ask a question. So add who, what, when, where, why, how in front of those categories and you can come up with heart questions. So here are some suggestions. When do you tend to experience worry or anxiety? Uh, which category does that fit into, by the way? Emotions. So there's emotions. What robs you of your joy? There's another emotion question. What do you find yourself seeking to avoid? Which category or categories? It, some of these could overlap. What, so that could, so I have to make a decision to avoid something. So uh, that could also be a thought question because I have to put thought into what I'm making a decision to avoid. What stirs your anger or causes frustration? Another emotion question. A mind question. What dominates your thinking? Then, very, I find a very convicting question. What does this tell you about the values of your heart? What am I treasuring? What am I wanting? Uh, what's really driving me when I'm serving like I am in ministry? Now, let me just say something here uh, because I think I have to make this uh, caveat. Uh, that my understanding of the heart and because of remnant sin would tell me that nobody can ever serve with 100% pure motives. We're all a mixed bag of motives all the time. So I can be standing and preaching and 90% of me can be preaching for the glory of God, but 10% of me or 5% of me is thinking, I sure hope they like this sermon. You know, what are they thinking? of this sermon. Or as I'm preaching, my mind is looking at a person thinking, they're looking at me funny right now. I wonder what they're thinking about me. So we deal with, because of the need for sanctification, sanctification is not just for our behavior, right? Progressive sanctification is for what's going on in the wants and desires of my inner person. So I just want to clear the air on that, that I don't think that we can have 100% pure motives. But you can tell if something has become what I would call an inordinate desire, and we're going to get to that, or an enslaving desire that starts dominating your life, and then it really starts impacting other people, like what I think is going on in this pastor's wife or life right now. So what would you add as a heart question? You think of one. Use mind, will, emotions, desires, and let you, you fill in a bullet point there. Just give me another heart question. Because I want you to think with me. <laughs> when that was effective, when I was struggling in this area, my mentor asked, how would I feel or what would I do if God told me I never needed to help anyone ever again? Yeah. He took my ministry away and said, you're done. You're good. That was incredibly revealing. Yeah. So if God revealed to you your ministry was done, you're never going to get to help anyone again, how would you respond? Now, Fawn, that's really interesting you brought that up, because I was going to save this till later. But as you all know, our brother in the Lord, David Pallison, uh, just went to be with the Lord. And uh, his memorial service was on Tuesday, which um, I, it was very helpful to me. Uh, to listen to that memorial service. So I live-streamed the whole three hours uh, just to be ministered to because Dave was one of my teachers at Westminster Seminary. Uh, so I've been grieving over the last uh, couple of weeks as Dave has gone. It's hard for me to imagine a biblical counseling world without David Pallison. But the Lord is good, and he's going to take care of us. Um, but on the plane yesterday, I started reading his book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, and I came across that very thing. So here's David's with the Lord, but he's still going to minister to us here today. Uh, he says he was struggling at a time in his life when he wasn't thinking clearly. He was having a hard time completing his thoughts. And he was really thinking about, is my, this was like 25 years ago, is my ministry over? And he said, in the silence and darkness, I prayed my troubles to God. My prayers were basic. Lord, you say you are very present help in trouble. This is trouble. Help. Because he was having meetings with people and he couldn't complete his thoughts. Something was going on in his mind. It was mildly encouraging that in reconstructing what had happened that day, I could piece together what I had intended to say. But two other considerations proved far more helpful. 
The first consideration was something my pastor had instilled 25 years earlier. He actively discipled the small group leaders and seminary students in our congregation. He would get pointedly personal in alerting us to the danger of turning gifts into an identity and ministry into an idolatry. He challenged us to do, to do a thought experiment. What if you were in a car accident and had a permanent brain injury? You were no longer able to do the things you now love doing. Could you be content working at McDonald's, restocking supplies, emptying trash, mopping floors, and cleaning bathrooms? We need to be able to answer yes. I would do such work willingly. We might grieve our injury or loss, certainly, but in the end it was supremely important that we could be content doing any honorable work. And keeping a restaurant clean is honorable. Janitorial work does active good to patrons, fellow workers, and employers. So he's asking the exact same question. Great book on suffering, uh, by the way. So now that we've laid a foundation, how do you di- point C, how do you diagnose if a good desire, like serving in ministry, and I've heard this regularly, and I do a lot of conflict resolution and um, have done quite a few church interventions, and I can tell you when you go into a church, I'm a pastor, so I'm going to pick on pastors a little bit here. So, and I've been doing this a long time now. Um, Pastors are some of the most difficult people I have to deal with in church conflicts because they have a hard time seeing what's going on in their own hearts. I'm the, I'm the Greek student, I'm the theologian, and they really have a hard time owning what's going on in their own heart. So it's not surprising me that this pastor that I'm dealing with right now, I have him reading Pallison, I have him doing heart questions, and he's just he's saying to me, I just don't see it. I don't see it. I don't see what I'm serving. I I know there's something there, but I'm having a hard time seeing what it is. So um, how do you help people? So imagine you're the helper. How do you diagnose if a good desire has become an idolatrous, enslaving, inordinate desire? So I want to give you five ways to think. So I only gave you a little space there. I'm sorry. But I want to give you five ways to help discern how if something has escalated from what we would call like a normal honorable desire to something that's now controlling me. So um, I learned this first one from a guy that's had a huge impact on my life, Ken Sandy. And it's from his wonderful book, uh, Peacemaking for Families. If you haven't used that book, it's our most used book in our counseling center, Peacemaking for Families by Ken Sandy. And the chapter on the heart is really done well. And he talks about how does, um, how do you know if something's become idolatrous? Has a good desire become a demand? So a desire has turned into a demand. Well, how do you tell if it's become a demand? Am I starting to criticize other people? Am I getting judgmental with other people? And then what do judges do? Judges pass sentence, so we punish. So a desire turns into a demand. And the Puritans talked about inordinate desires or escalating, enslaving. Something has become an enslaving desire in someone's life. Well, how do you tell? A good desire like, I just want intimacy with my wife. I have to have intimacy. So I like to have it becomes I have to have it. Judgment. She must not be a godly woman because she's not giving me the intimacy I desire. Punishment. She's not giving me the intimacy I desire, so I'm going to give her the cold shoulder like she's giving me. And a a very helpful resource from back in the day, a long time ago, Peacemaker Ministries, they had a little brochure called The Danger of Playing God, how we all have that tendency of passing judgment on, on others, and that, as James would say, there's one lawgiver and one Judge. So has a desire, a good desire turned into a demand or another way of saying that this is number two, the I like to haves become I have to have. So it's not money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money. I have to have it has become the root of all evil. I have to have a successful ministry. I have to be known as a successful pastor. I have to be known as a truth teller. That has to be my reputation. Um, I like to have becomes I have to have. And uh, how do you know 
if it's become idolatrous, well, what happens when you take it away? Mm -hmm. If you take that away, what kind of emotions get stirred? So when something feels threatened, what happens in your heart? And we're going to talk more about that and just with my next point. So and that's point three. What's going on in the emotions? So what stirs my fear? Um, what stirs my depression? What stirs worry? And you can start seeing how that's all tied in with the heart. Now, I told you I've been living with this for uh, 61 years as of next week, 61 years. And so my father was a pastor and uh, I basically have no memories of my father. So my father took great pride in being fully devoted to ministry. And what that meant was we didn't have a family life. There was no family life. So I have very, very few memories of my father. Uh, when I was, uh, got into my teenage years, it turned into intense bitterness uh, in my soul. And in fact, the last thing, this is, the Lord has such a sense of humor. Uh, the last thing in the world that I wanted to be was a pastor. Uh, <laughs> the Lord said, I'll show you. So, um, and praise God, I'm thankful to be a shepherd. And I love that identity of being a shepherd and, and helping people. Uh, and the Lord has turned good out of it because something I told you, we've been living with this. This seminar has probably been brewing for it's been brewing for decades now because we've tried to work really hard in our lives of how not to let ministry become idolatrous uh, because of what I experienced. And by the way, there's no bitterness in my soul toward my father. We had many talks about this. And um, he said to me later on in his life, uh, son, I want you to know that if I could do it over, I would do many things differently. Um, so just so you know, that's resolved in my mind. The Lord's good. I've forgiven him. I'm thankful to be called uh, to ministry. But as a teenager, I intensely hated my father to the point that I was actually plotting his murder as a pastor's son. I was plotting in my mind, how do I eliminate this man? I just despise him. I do not want to be around him. So that's why this seminar is so important to me. I don't want other pastors' families to go through the same type of experience or pastors' wives to go through the same type of experience. So uh, I've given you three so far. So what's going on in the emotions? Uh, Elise, number four, what's going on in the will? So Elise brought this up many years ago in her book, Idols of the Heart. What are you willing to sin to get? So am I willing to sin to get it? So I am willing to violate Ephesians 4, which tells me to be gentle and kind, in Colossians 3, to be gentle and kind and tolerant because I have to be a truth teller. So I'm willing to sin to get what I want. Do you see what's going on there? He would excuse, I'm a truth teller. This is the way God wired me. I can say anything I want to say. I have to. It's the way God made me. But then I would come back to him and say, but you're violating Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 doing what you believe God has called you to do. Um, so, and then number five, so the will, am I willing to sin to get it? And then number five, what's going on with the opposites of the fruit of the Spirit? And this is something that I found very intriguing when I was learning a diagram we, we call the Three Trees Diagram from David Pallison. So uh, you'll just have to follow my logic here a little bit. And he called this the fruit of the Spirit test. And so praise God, the gospel makes a difference in our lives, right? And we're not stuck. We can grow and change. But Pallison with the three trees diagram said, here we are wanting the fruit of the Spirit. So love, joy, peace. And often over here, the bad fruit that's coming out is just expressions of what we're wanting over here. It's ways that I'm seeking peace. It's the way I'm trying to find joy, trying to find love in my life. So if what's going on in my heart here, in the worship of my heart, is where the Spirit is worshiping or working. So worship, and do we all agree the Spirit's working in the inner person to change us, right? So what is the opposite? So where do I struggle with joy? What's robbing me of my joy? 
Where do I struggle with another fruit of the Spirit would be self-control. Where do I struggle with self-control? Well, you can trace those right back down into the heart, what's being served. So what robs you of joy? Where do you struggle with self-control? Where do you struggle with patience? That's telling you about the idolatry that's going on in the heart. So the fruit of the Spirit test can tell you if something has become an inordinate desire. So point D is really important, and that is we don't, I really don't want this understanding of the heart to become like, okay, this is a nifty biblical counseling psychology. <laughs> this is like a new psychology, and we're, it's a new understanding of human nature. I really want to make sure we have a theological, biblical connection here that it's not just a nifty new way to understand the inner person, it's idolatry. It really, it's not metaphorical idolatry, it is real idolatry. And if it's real idolatry, What's the first thing we need to do? Repent. And that's going to be the top of my list when we get to the end of, okay, how do you help a person where ministry has, you discern by asking questions and they start to see, wow, ministry has become more of an identity. Like ministry is my identity more than being a Christian is my identity. And I'll give you some indicators of that in just a moment. So how do we understand this as false worship? Please turn with me to Matthew 12. And I've developed the conviction. If you have a better passage, please tell me. This is the best passage, either this or Matthew 6, but I, I use this one to help people get the connection between the heart and idolatry. I really work hard at this with counselees, not just understanding what the Bible teaches about the heart, but understanding that the heart is idolatrous. The heart is about false worship. The heart is my worship center. So... Matthew 12, 34 and 35. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? Here's the famous verse. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's going to become important for a little diagram I'm going to draw you toward the end. Why do I talk to people? Why is my pastor friend talking to his wife the way he is? Well, something's going on in his heart, according to our Lord in Matthew 12, 34. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. So what's the substitute word that the Lord uses for heart in verse 35? Treasure. Treasure. So as soon as I introduce the idea of treasure, don't you start getting into worth-ship? The word worship is the old English word worth-ship. What do you worship? It's what you ascribe worth to. So uh, I think this is a very intriguing connection that the Lord gives us of how do you tell what's going on in the heart? Well, what do you deem worthy? What is the person? In other words, is using Jonathan Edwards type thinking, if, you're not a, if you haven't read Jonathan Edwards as a biblical counselor, you need to read some Jonathan Edwards because he's going to help you think more deeply about human intentions or the affections, as he would call them. But what's the value system of the person? That's really what I want to get at as a biblical counselor. What is this person's value system? What are the treasures of the heart? So let's do just a little bit of interacting here. How can you tell when somebody treasures something? And for the sake of the... Um, the recording, I'll repeat what you have to say. What they talk about. What, about. what else? How can you tell if someone treasures something? Where the money goes. That's Matthew 6. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Time. Is that what you're going to say? Okay. So where your time goes. When it's taken away. Yeah. What happens in emotions when it's taken away? Um, so the treasures of the heart. Now, let's just take that another step. How can you tell when somebody loves something? So I ask, how do you tell when somebody treasures something? Now, how can you tell when somebody loves something? What they're passionate about. What they're passionate about. It's the exact same things. Exactly. So, and that's the Jonathan Edwards thinking is what's going on in your affections? What are you loving? So 
I've been intrigued over the years with, so, and by the way, I still teach at Masters and have the privilege of leading the online uh, biblical counseling undergraduate degree. So please help spread the word about that. Masters University has a complete Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Counseling online degree, and the Lord is blessing it. And I'm very thankful to be uh, able to lead that uh, degree program. But um, I've been intrigued through the years, being connected with Masters, you know we love expository preaching, right? We love exegesis, we love expository preaching. But here's an interesting thing. I've seen some pastors be so, it's like they're more devoted and treasure the process of expository preaching than they do the Lord of the expository preaching. And that sounds strange, I know, but let me tell you a story. So, um, can you worship expository preaching? I believe the answer is yes. And uh, just tells us the tendencies of the heart. So, a uh, church was asking me to consider being their interim pastor. And I always tell seminary guys, when you're candidating at a church, you're candidating the church, they're not just candidating you. And so, I'm trying to figure out with this church, am I a good fit with this church, even as an interim pastor? So I wanted to find out with these elders that were asking me to consider being their interim pastor, I wanted to see where they were spiritually. Am I a good fit with them? And are we going to have a good DNA match here? And so I went around and I said, could you guys tell me about your prayer life? Tell me about your own personal relationship with the Lord. What do you do devotionally to keep your walk with the Lord fresh? One of the main elders, who was known as a great Bible teacher, he talked nothing about his prayer life, talked nothing about his devotional life. He talked about the process of expository preaching and preparing to preach. And I thought, something is hitting me wrong about this. That was not the question I asked you. I was exploring your own walk with the Lord. What do you do to pursue relationship with the Lord? Um, you can think about that, all right, whether you think expository preaching can even become idolatrous. So what does the person consider worthy of worship? I love this quote from Martin Luther. He says this, and this is on in his larger catechism on the first commandment. A God is that which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing more than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. As I've often said, the trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. That to which our heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. So am I clinging to success? Am I clinging to my reputation as a pastor? Am I clinging to, do I have the approval of my congregation? Um, what accolades do I get for being a Sunday school teacher? Uh, we're trying to nuance the heart here and try to figure out has something has even something as beautiful as ministry become idolatrous. So what are some signs of idolatry? Well, I believe a, a main one is family. What's going on with the family? And it is not a mistake that both the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 make family, how you're managing your family, right at, they're right at the top of the list. Tell you an interesting story. So back in 1994, I think it was, I had the privilege of speaking at a pastor's conference in Ukraine. And uh, over the years, the Lord has given me the opportunity to teach in Russia and Ukraine quite a bit. And this was not very long after the wall fell. And it was one of the first pastor's conferences that Slavic Gospel Association was having in Ukraine. And we were out right outside of Kiev. And I was asked to speak on the pastor, the pastor's home. And I chose to give them warnings based upon American pastors who had gotten their priorities wrong and how they lost their families uh, to not do that, to keep your priorities right and uh, not to be so uh, consumed with ministry that you lose your relationship with your wife and your children. So I spoke on that and the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. There were about 400 pastors there, and at the end, this pastor stood up, and he was yelling in the back. And I turned to the translator, and I said, 
what's he saying? And he's saying, you don't want to hear. <laughs> and I, later on, he told me that he was vehemently disagreeing with me that that will never happen in our families. Our wives understand that we have to be fully devoted to fully devoted to ministry. And I, my argument would be you can be fully devoted to ministry and not lose your wife and family. You can learn to keep your priorities right. And I'm going to give you some hints on that and what, what we tried to do. And remember, I was driven to this just because of what happened in my family. So this is a topic that we've had to put a lot of thought into through the years. So is the family being neglected or properly shepherded? So what's going on in family life? Uh, what's going on with the husband and wife and their walk with the Lord together? Is there time to disciple children? It really struck me as a pastor, if I'm going to make time to disciple other people, why am I not scheduling into my schedule time to disciple my children? So uh, are family devotions going on? Is there playtime with the kids? So what's going on with health? What's going on with hobbies? Now, let me give a caveat here as well, just as I did before, that we can't always know our, our motives and we can't be uh, 100% pure in all of our motives. The other extreme can also be true, that you can be so focused on family that you're not devoted to ministry. So walking the line here is very important. And I've had to deal with pastors on the other side of the extreme that what was going on in their hearts, what they were serving is things like family and comfort loving, and they had heard so many horror stories about losing their family that they were so devoted to their family that the church was being neglected. So learning to walk the tightrope here of I'm working hard for my family and I'm working hard for the Lord and ministry and learning that balance can be a very difficult thing. So I don't want to be guilty of idolatry either direction. So here was my guideline while my children were at home. So my rationale was this, was I would work around 50 hours a week. 50, some weeks were way more than that, right, honey? So some weeks are way more than that. Rose has been incredibly gracious understanding that. But generally speaking, my guideline has been 50, 55 hours a week. And maybe your, your tolerance level is higher than mine. But I found if I was working more as a pastor, more than 50 hours a week, my things like taking Rose on a date, my own devotional life, playing with my children, they started to get neglected. And here's why I came up with 50 hours. 40, we expect 40 hours of pe people work a job, 40 hours, and then a volunteer in the church, we would think they're great if they gave 10 hours a week to the church, right? Wouldn't you think people are great if they would give you 10 hours a week to the church? So I want to be a good example to the church. So if the typical person works 40 hours, and we think a volunteer might work 10 hours. Well, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to work 50 hours a week then. And I've just found that that, that helped me stay at least semi-sane uh, in ministry through the years. But please understand, I understand after 38 years of ministry, there's many weeks that go way beyond 50 hours of, of ministry. So I already talked about the next one. Is the person more concerned about Bible exegesis than the Lord of the Bible? So what's going on in the personal relationship with the Lord? Here's a biggie. I hear this one being violated all the time. And this can be true of a Sunday school teacher, an Awana worker, or someone in full-time ministry. Is a Sabbath being taken? So I'm not a Sabbatarian. That's a discussion for a whole nother, nother time. But I do believe the Sabbath principle is something that was established by God even 300 years, actually, hundreds of years before the law was actually given. The idea of Sabbath was given and that we're not designed. Nobody's designed, not even pastors designed to work seven days a week. And when I hear young men almost bragging about working seven days a week, I go, OK, first of all, I know something's going to get out of balance in your life. And let's see how that's working for you when you get to about 60. Is it going to work to be keep working seven days a week is a Sabbath being taken. I believe you, you have to live a structured life and you, got, you have to take time off. God did not design us to work seven days a week. So what could be going on in the heart? The list could be em endless here, but I found these are some of the biggies for people in full-time ministry. If they're really honest, it can be things like, I want to be known as a success. I 
like the prestige of the position. And that's a people ple I have people pleasing slash prestige. I like the title. I like what goes along with the position. Um, or it's about control. It's about I am in control and the church would be great if everybody just listened to me. Um, and a test there could be, you know, what goes on in your emotions when the elder board doesn't agree with one of your proposals? And uh, that was one of the things that really helped me as a pastor realize, well, I've got some control tendencies when I would make proposals to our church leadership and a whole year, it would take another year before they'd finally approve it. And I go, okay, I've got to learn to trust the Lord instead of thinking if they would just follow my leadership uh, and just agree with everything that I'm proposing, the church would be great. Um, so I'm going to draw you a diagram. How do these tendencies then come out and affect relationships, which is why am I putting that in a seminar on knowing if ministry has become idolatrous? Well, one of the way, main ways of telling is what's going on in your relationships. How is this impacting other relationships? So I learned this diagram a long time ago. And let me see if I, did I pick up an eraser and carry it somewhere else? Is this an eraser? No, maybe. No, that's a pen. I'll just use my hand. And um, I was in here last night and there was an eraser, so... I'll try to do this, and I'm going to draw you a triangle, and I've drawn this for a lot of pastors and their wives, of how to understand what's going on in the relationship. This is one of my main diagrams I use in marriage counseling, too. So like Shrek, we have layers. And um, so what's going on in the layers? And the bottom level, biblically, is the heart. So I want to really help people understand, okay, what's going on at the heart? What are you, heart level, what are you serving? Things like success, control, pleasing people. But then the middle is what I would call relationship dynamics. And... Things like, how do you talk to others? So communication. So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, if everything's coming out of the heart, Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart, for from it flow the issues of life. Communication, that means not just communication, but how do I do conflict resolution? And how do I view my role? in marriage or as a pastor? How do I do with walking with the Lord with others? How do I do serving and honoring others? And how do I spend time with others? So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So then I also talk about character traits from Ephesians 4. And it lists things like gentleness. And just for the sake of time, give me an opposite of gentleness. Harshness. harshness. So this pastor speaks harshly to his wife. Uh, well, that tells me something. Instead of being gentle, something's going on in his heart because that's how he's talking to his wife. Instead of gentle, he's harsh. Uh, instead of patient... What would be an opposite of patience? So impatient, give me another one. Frustrated, how about irritable? So if you asked the wife, how do you feel around your husband? She would say, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. <laughs> well, he was trying to justify his heart. I'm just a truth teller. That's the way God wired me. I'm, that's what I'm called to do. That's my identity. That's what I'm supposed to do is just speak truth. No matter, just got to let the pieces fall wherever they fall. Well, something's going on in his heart. Well, how do I know it's idolatrous? Because he's violating other biblical principles. He's not communicating. He's not resolving in godly ways. He's not resolving conflict in godly ways. He's, 
He's a, what type of husband do you think he might tend to be? Dominate. Dominate. It's exactly how he is as a husband. Some, unloving. unloving. The wife says, I feel like I'm being controlled. Like he's just dominant all the time. So there's something idolatrous going on in the heart. Well, how do I know? Well, at the relationship dynamics level, the way he's relating to other people, it's being revealed. And then guess what comes out the top? Explosions. <laughs> and um, these are the complaints. So what, what does the wife complain about? What do the people in the church complain about? Well, it's showing what's being worshipped at the heart level. Um, and then you can draw a whole other uh, triangle of, that's the put off, and then you can put, draw a diagram of the put on side of where to go with people. So how do you address the issue? Let's conclude with this. First thing you have to do, repent. <laughs> So recognize it as idolatry and repent. It, this is, it's not just a nifty new way to understand the heart, and it's like a biblical psychology. We have a deeper problem than that. So think about how bad this is. I say I'm serving the holy, pure, majestic God of the universe, but I'm doing it for my own desires. <laughs> I mean, that is just disgusting when you start thinking about it. I'm serving the holy God, pure, the God of the universe, and I'm sacrificing myself in ministry for him, but it's all about my success and whether, or it's a, a lot about my success and whether people approve of me. Doesn't that make it sound appalling? And so we need to repent and say, okay, Lord, please purify my motives. Um, so repent. I, I loved one of my favorite sayings teaching my students at Masters. And teaching people now is if false worship's the problem, true worship is the solution. So I have to teach them, and it's not just true worship. True worship is better. True worship is superior. So how do we get people to deal with their hearts and change? Teach them there's a better way. Jesus is better. Worshiping the true and living God is better. So how do you kill false worship? Replace it with true worship. It's superior. If I was dealing with pastors, I would say, okay, ask your wife. <laughs> what does she think your tendencies are? Or if it's a woman, so I have someone I'm supervising for counseling right now that I'm really concerned that she's getting out of balance with how, with how much counseling she's taking on. And uh, the counseling has be, is becoming her identity, and I'm really concerned about it. So I'm asking her to talk to her husband. And you need your husband to help you stay in balance with accountability, with how much counseling you're actually doing. If it's sin and it's false worship, well, then who do you need to ask forgiveness of? And I use the seven A's of confession from Peacemaker Ministries or from the book uh, Peacemaking for Families or The Peacemaker. And I, I keep this brochure with me all the time. I, I have piles of these brochures. Uh, from Peacemaker Ministries, or used to be from Peacemaker Ministries, and it has all the... Ken Sandy jokes and says, isn't it sad that your whole life work can be summarized into a, a brochure? <laughs> so uh, this has the seven A's of confession on the back, and I use it so often I just keep it right in my Bible, and I keep piles of them in my, my office. Um, be disciplined and set a day off. If you're going to deal with these tendencies of ministry is idolatry, whatever it is, you've got to be disciplined with keeping a Sabbath. Please think through that issue. I hear pastors violating that on a regular basis. I'm in ministry, so I can violate a biblical principle. No, you can't. You're not designed to work seven days a week. It's just violating a biblical principle. Set guidelines to protect family time. We had all kinds of guidelines that we kept in our family uh, for so that I... I wanted to be home with my kids for when they went to bed. The only exception I made to that was uh, once a month for our church board meeting. Other than that, if it was a church committee meeting and it, it got to be 8 o'clock, I would, I would look at the people that I was, you know, the pastor was supposed to be the ex officio chair of, or member of every committee of the church. And I'd just look at them and say, you know what, I trust you people. I love you. I am so thankful for you. I am going home and we're going to put my kids to bed and you just let me know how the meeting ended. And um, remember the Sabbath principle. Uh, 
you just can't serve ministry and be studying the Bible. And even if you're a great exegete, you have to do things devotionally. And so I'm always trying to read devotional literature just to feed my soul. And for me, that's John Piper. Um, he, that just ministers to my soul. And it's not like deep Bible study type stuff for me. I really like the way he thinks. And it just helps feed me intellectually and in my soul. Um, then I'll conclude with this. What do you do if you see in someone else's life the potential of violating this ministry idolatry? That's a hard topic to bring up, especially if the person's a pastor, unfortunately, and they're an authority over you. So what do you do? Well, the way when I'm speaking to people in authority over me, uh, what I do is I pose questions and I ask them, I'll say to them, could we switch roles for a moment? And I'd like you to imagine that you're me and I'm you. And this is what you're seeing. And I start posing questions. You're seeing this. What would you be thinking if you're seeing this? And what would you be seeing or thinking if you saw me working seven days a week? What would you be thinking if you uh, heard my children say that they don't ever see me. Um, and I just pose questions. And inevitably, the person will say, you're probably thinking that I'm put, that ministry is out of balance. Or whatever the issue is. Uh, I've seen that tactic work over and over again when I ask the person to reverse roles. And I'd like you to try to see this from my perspective. And instead, instead of coming right with a frontal attack and saying, you are guilty of ministry idolatry and you are violating the Sabbath, um, pose questions to people that are in authority over you or somebody that you're trying to get to see something. And I've seen the Lord use that uh, many, many times. So I'll close again with the statement I made earlier. No amount of success in ministry will be made up for by failure as a husband and a father. And there's a direct connection between 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and the topic that we're talking about and the qualifications for ministry. Any quick questions? And I'm happy we're a little bit over time, but any quick questions? Anything you think I left out that you wish would have been covered? Um, yes, ma'am. Yeah. So the question was uh, counseling the wife. And are we assuming for the sake of the question that it's a pastor's wife? Sure. So it's a pastor's wife. And the, she's saying my husband is way out of balance with ministry and she's complaining about family time, et cetera, being neglected. Um, so the first question that comes or thought that comes to my mind there is how healthy their relationship is. So if their relationship's healthy, I would be teaching her how to make an appeal to her husband and do exactly what I just did with you. Honey, could we talk for a moment? And if you were seeing this and seeing this and seeing this, what might you be thinking? And trying to bring up the question. But I am really committed to an, another thing that I learned from Peacemaking for Families. And this is one of the tools you learn if you come to our school, to, school of mediation at First Baptist in Jacksonville, is how to learn, use the pause principle with people. So I teach people a conflict resolution tool called the pause principle, P-A-U. I love dogs, uh, but it's not P-A-W-S. It's P-A-U-S-E, and it's based on Philippians 2, 3 to 5, and it's how do you negotiate. And we call it cooperative negotiating instead of competitive negotiating. So how do you teach people to work through issues like this? How do you teach a husband and wife to work through issues like that? So I'd be teaching her the pause principle. Anything? Did I hear another question over here or thought? Yes. And we'll make this the last one. <laughs> well, actually, I have a lot of questions. Okay. Speaking, but, um, well, we can hang around and talk, brother. <laughs> all right. And um, because you mentioned that you were working 55 hours. Yeah. Yeah. And, Try. <laughs> you know, I was kind of like wondering, you know, why were you working 20 or 55 hours? And in a lot of the cases, 
you know, is some of the problem the fact that maybe the person isn't cohesively building a team mm -hmm. that can spread the time out, or they were more protective of holding on to all the um, responsibility. Yeah, I think that's good insight. Yeah, that is a tendency in ministry. Yeah, you're not trained in seminary how to build a team and mentor other leaders, which is a, I mean, most seminaries don't teach that skill. It's really a need of how do you build a team so you don't have to be working all kinds of inordinate hours. Yep, that's good. Okay, and then I noticed you had mentioned, you know, when you shared about family life, mm -hmm. um, and you had grown to the point of hatred. What was the, a little bit of, you know, what was the atmosphere? Was it a legalistic atmosphere in the home or? I would say there was no atmosphere. There was no family life. So that's what I was bitter about is why does my father have so much time for everybody else, but he has no time for his family? That was the question as a stupid teenager that was going through my brain. So even as a 14, 15-year-old who was really young and naive and stupid, that's what was going on in my mind is why does my dad have so much time, you know, and other kids have their dads go to their baseball games, and I'm always going to my baseball games alone. And um, so that was what was going through my brain. Let me pray for you. Father, um, as First John says, we want to keep our, our hearts from idols. And uh, we are, we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it prone to leave the God we love. So even a good gift like ministry and shepherding or Sunday school teaching or Awana or counseling uh, can become idolatrous. Uh, help us to continue to grow in our skills to uh, help others see what's going on. And I pray for the brother that I'm working with right now that you would help him see what's going on and uh, encourage his wife as she is trying to deal with what's going on in her heart as well. Thank you for these people and their ministries. I commit them to you and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2019, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.